Oh, hi, it's Zach Peter, your new favorite pop culture guru, serving you the hottest tea three times a week. From the latest news on The Real Housewives, deep dives into celebrity legal scandals, unfiltered convos with your favorite stars, and of course, the latest from Vanderpump Land, I've got you covered. And new episodes of the podcast are now available in video on Spotify. And they don't just let anybody do video, but this platinum blonde has won them over. So if you want the latest news from the ultimate tea spilling professional, tune in to No Filter with Zach Peter. That's No Filter with Zach Peter on your favorite podcast app now. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of All My Movies. The theme this month is kind of an easy one. These are just some of my favorite movies. Some of my favorite movies for good reasons, some of my favorite movies for cheesy reasons, just movies that I love to watch, that I love to revisit. And the first thing that I thought of when I was thinking of movies that I love is Star Trek. Star Trek is something that we haven't really talked about on this show too much, and I love it so much. And some people might say, well, why not start with Star Trek The Motion Picture and work your way forward? Well, the answer is that Star Trek The Motion Picture, to be honest, is not one of my favorite movies. So I decided to start this show's Star Trek journey with 2009's reboot, Star Trek, directed by J.J. Abrams. It is still one of my favorite Star Trek films for a number of reasons that we're going to get into on today's show. But before we get there, I'd like to thank everyone, first of all, for watching the show. If you're watching this on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Movies, or if you're listening to the show on the audio podcast feed Thank you so much. If you are a watcher and you want to hear the audio version, you can find all of the information about how to subscribe to the podcast down in the description below. And if you are listening to us and you want to see the video, you can check me out on YouTube. Also, one quick programming note, if you do skip to the end of the show once I start wrapping things up, which, hey, you know, I get it. I understand. There's a lot of podcasts in the world. Don't do it this week. I'm going to pull an MCU on you. I have an announcement at the end of this show about where we're going to be going in the near future that I want to make sure everybody that's able to watch and listen to the show can hear. So stay tuned at the end of the show for something about the road ahead. In the wake of 2002's Star Trek Nemesis, the Trek franchise was at a crossroads. Nemesis had brought in a low box office number and dismal reviews, making it very clear that after just four movies, the crew from the Next Generation TV show was not a viable way forward for the franchise. And yet, at the same time, the cancellation of Star Trek Enterprise in 2005 meant that there was not another Star Trek TV show or a crew waiting in the wings for the first time in nearly two decades. One show that was on the air, however, was Lost. In the wake of its 2004 debut on ABC, creators J.J. Abrams and Damon Lindelof had quickly become the hottest properties in Hollywood. And this was good news for Paramount, who were looking for some fresh eyes to rejuvenate a franchise that seemed to be adrift. Paramount is sort of looking to reinvigorate the franchise. Could we make it cool? You know, which is essentially the, you know, all conversations with J.J. sort of gravitate towards this inevitable question is, can we make it cool? A new Star Trek film was announced that was set to be produced by Abrams and Lindelof, but there was one small problem. While Lindelof was a Star Trek fan, Abrams was not. It was never a show that I felt like I was a, a rabid fan of. I, I enjoyed it and I liked it, but it was never, you know, like The Twilight Zone was my, was my favorite show. So it was weird that I, I had this sort of... Um, this desire to do it. To round out the team, Abrams brought on Brian Burke as executive producer and writers Roberto Orsi and Alex Kurtzman, who had worked with J.J. Abrams on numerous projects, including for several years on Alias and on his film Mission Impossible 3. Together, the film represented a creative team that ran the spectrum of Star Trek fandom with the hopes that they would produce a finished film that would speak to established Trekkers and new fans alike. We wanted it to be a movie that absolutely satisfied 
hardcore fans and that actually included in its very fiber and fabric the Star Trek that come before. But simultaneously, and this is the tricky part, how do we appeal to everybody and how do we make this movie for everyone? The answer to this conundrum was found partially in an idea that had been floating around for decades, at least since the 1960s, and that was an idea to do a prequel version of the show that featured young Kirk, Scotty, Bones, Spock, and the entire Enterprise crew when they were still cadets at Starfleet Academy. But this approach added a layer of difficulty to the team trying to break the story. How do you sell the audience that these characters are in any kind of genuine danger when you know for a fact that they're going to survive and go on to have decades of adventures together? What is a version of an origin story that doesn't limit us to the, the classic um, prequel dilemma, which is, hey, I know that they survive, I know that they're okay. To solve this problem, the team looked to a device that was very familiar to any Star Trek fan, time travel. Time travel in the movies had already been the key component of 1987 Star Trek IV The Voyage Home and 1996's Star Trek First Contact, but there was one key difference. Instead of the Enterprise trying to journey around and save their own timeline, this time travel story would create an alternate timeline, creating a skewed version of history and freeing the Star Trek characters from decades of continuity and canon. In order to do this, the team felt that someone from the original timeline had to be involved to help spur this change, and they believed that the only man for the job was Mr. Spock himself, Leonard Nimoy, who had been playing the role at this time for over 40 years. So we broke the entire story on a wing and a prayer, hoping that when we presented it to him, he would want to do it. Had he read the script and said, no, we would have been screwed. <laughs> it would have been a disaster. Luckily for Abrams and the writing team, Nimoy did approve the script and the basic premise, which finds Spock thrown back in time after failing to prevent the destruction of the Romulan homeworld, Romulus. At the same time, a Romulan named Nero is also thrown back in time, where he starts a war with the Federation, killing Captain Kirk's father and starting an alternate timeline. I very quickly got the sense that they, that they really understood what was the best of Star Trek and what made it good Star Trek. Ironically, to bring this version of Star Trek to a new generation, Abrams and the team looked to another sci-fi franchise for inspiration. A franchise that, unbeknownst to everyone at the time, Abrams would also get a chance at reinventing just a few years in the future. Alex and JJ, who said, uh, what can we learn from Star Wars here? I didn't want to sort of impose a Star Wars tone on Star Trek, but I, there was a certain kind of pace that Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi had that I just thought that was the pace that I loved. Part of reinventing the franchise, and maybe the hardest part, was casting people to replace characters that had been burned into the pop culture landscape for decades. And no role proved a challenge as big as replacing the man who sits in the captain's chair, Captain James Tiberius Kirk himself, made famous, of course, by William Shatner. No, I won't kill him. Do you hear? You'll have to get your entertainment someplace else. Setting a precedent that would continue throughout casting, Abrams and the team decided to largely not recruit A-list talent, instead trying to find lesser-known actors who were right for the part. And for the role of Captain Kirk, they landed on Chris Pine, who at the time was probably best known for starring opposite Lindsay Lohan and Anne Hathaway in Just My Luck and The Princess Diaries 2, and for a supporting role in 2007's ensemble crime film Smoke and Aces. And the decision not to imitate Shatner's unique speaking voice and cadence in playing Captain Kirk was a key part in 
and Landing Pine the role. Obviously, William Shatner has a rhythm and a cadence to his dialogue that's so specific, especially as Kirk. And I think the mistake would have been to ask Chris to copy that in some way. So the goal was to figure out what the spirit of Captain Kirk was really all about. While Pine definitely had a difficult job replacing William Shatner, he did not have the challenge of having to appear in the film with William Shatner. This was not the case with the actor who would be cast to play Spock, who not only had to play the younger version of Leonard Nimoy's character, but would also appear alongside Nimoy in the movie. The world of TV came into play yet again with actor Zachary Quinto, who had recently broken out on the television show Heroes as the supervillain Siler. As the new Star Trek film was coming together, the actor found the concept of playing the character of Spock, for lack of a better word, fascinating as he contemplated what would be his first feature film role. It was a, a board about this new Star Trek movie that they were doing, and, uh, and somebody wrote something about me playing Spock on it. And it really ignited this idea in in me, I was like, I want to play Spock. Quinto impressed the producers with his ability to both channel Nimoy's original performance and make the character of Spock his own. But it wasn't just the producer's seal of approval that Quinto needed. He would also need Nimoy to sign off on his casting. Luckily, this did not prove to be a problem. Well, they sent me some footage of him. I immediately saw that there was enough resemblance and a, and a, and a load of talent. No problem. Thank you very much, and let's go to work. Nimoy and Quinto actually grew very close during filming, with the younger actor relying heavily on advice from the older actor and how to play the character that he had inhabited for over four decades. This advice also extended to how Quinto would learn to deal with the rabid and hardcore Star Trek fanbase, as evidenced in this apparently very casual moment that was caught on film. Now, do you You're go... have this for the rest of your life. <laughs> you said it to me the first day I met you in the elevator, remember? You said to me that. You're screwed. <laughs> as Dr. Leonard Bones McCoy, New Zealand actor Carl Urban was cast, already notable from appearing in two Lord of the Rings films as Aomer and in 2004's The Bourne Supremacy as an assassin. Despite being born literally half a world away from the native home of DeForest Kelly, the original actor who played Dr. McCoy in the state of Georgia, Urban was able to breathe new life into the old country doctor. So back home, we got a saying, if you're going to ride in the Kentucky Derby, you don't leave your prize stallion in the stable. 2009 was a huge year for Zoe Saldana. She had already appeared in several notable film projects and later that year would go on to star in the highest grossing movie of all time, James Cameron's Avatar, a feat that she would repeat a decade later in 2019 with Avengers Endgame. Taking over the role of Lieutenant Uhura, Saldana sought to continue the legacy established by the original actress Nichelle Nichols, a groundbreaking role in American television, while also growing and developing the character beyond the bounds of the original Star Trek. TV show. What about you? You speak Romulan, cadet? Uhura. All three dialects, sir. Uhura. Relieve the lieutenant. Yes, sir. As helmsman Hikaru Sulu, John Cho, best known at the time for his role in the Harold and Kumar films, took over from actor George Takei. But only after consulting with Abrams, who was concerned that replacing an actor of Japanese descent with one of Korean descent would cause trouble in the fan community. At first, I was concerned because he's of Korean descent, and I thought, well, you know, Sulu was of Japanese descent, and I didn't want to cause some kind of uproar in the Trekker community. So I called George, and I asked him, and he gave me this amazing speech about how, when Gene Roddenberry created this role, how this was not a, supposed to be a Japanese character. Well, he had this whole sort of Pan-Asian 
you know, philosophy about what this character represented. To play Engineer Montgomery Scott, J.J. Abrams literally emailed Simon Pegg, who had already appeared in one film of his, Mission Impossible 3, to see if he wanted to take over the role. Initially daunted by taking on such a big part, Pegg couldn't turn down the chance to play a role that he had grown up literally watching on television. Despite acknowledging going in exactly what he was getting into, Pegg often found the experience of shooting a Star Trek movie to be a surreal one. I remember having quite odd times on set with shooting into the night and just sort of sat on a chair with an oyster-faced alien and Leonard Nimoy next to me. I had those moments when I was thinking, what am I doing? How did I get here? Peg's casting is also particularly ironic in context with this 1999 clip from the TV show Spaced, an early acting role that Peg co-wrote with co-star Jessica Stevenson and that was directed by Edgar Wright. It's a fact. Sure as day follows night, sure as eggs is eggs, sure as every odd-numbered Star Trek movie is shit. Given that this is either the 11th Star Trek film or the first film in a new series, both odd numbers, this is pretty hilarious. It's also wrong, by the way. Star Trek The Motion Picture, the first film in the series, is definitely not for everybody, but I wouldn't throw it into the bad pile, just the not for me pile. Star Trek 3 gets a bad rap. It's not as great as Star Trek 2 or Star Trek 4, but it's right in the middle, and I think it's a passable film. Star Trek Generations is also not a bad film. I think it does about the best job you can do of handing the torch from one generation to the next. And then Star Trek Insurrection, maybe not as high stakes as you'd want from a Star Trek movie, but again, I wouldn't exactly call it shit. There is one thing that I have to agree with, though. I cannot defend Star Trek V The Final Frontier. Just can't do it. What does God need with a starship? Bring the ship closer. I said... What does God need with a starship? Rounding out the bridge crew as the Russian ensign Chekhov was the late Anton Yelchin, who, despite still being a teenager when the first Star Trek movie was filmed, was already a veteran of films both big and indie. Prior to his tragic and untimely death in 2016, Star Trek was just one stop on Yelchin's road to success, and he took this part very seriously, even going so far as to consult original Chekhov actor Walter Koenig on how to believably operate the controls of the USS Enterprise. And I asked Walter if he knew what he was doing, he's like, no, I sort of just uh, picked colors based on my mood. Like I'd pick, I'd hit the blue button when I was feeling sad. At some point, you just have to pretend. Even with the bridge crew filled out, there was one critical role that had yet to be cast, the role of Nero, the Romulan that goes back in time, kills Captain Kirk's father, and alters the Star Trek timeline forever. It was important to the writers that Nero not just be an antagonist, but have a motivation that the audience could relate to and understand. A man grieving for the loss of his home planet and his family and looking for retribution. Sometimes your movie is only as good as its bad guy. Bad guy that you can't relate to sometimes ultimately becomes a non-bad guy. Bad guy you can relate to becomes much more engaging to the audience. Eric Bana, practically unrecognizable under Romulan ears and tattoos, was brought in to film the part. And what I love about his performance is that he really brings a cold glee as well as a hard-hearted hate to his performance. It's a balance that's not easy to get right. It's also a role that Banner admittedly had a good time playing. I felt as though the writers had almost treated his villainous with a grain of salt. And, and I thought he would be an entertaining villain. And most of all, from a selfish point of view, I knew it would be a lot of fun to play. With the main roles in place, Star Trek was also rounded out with an incredibly talented supporting cast. Bruce Greenwood as Christopher Pike, Kirk's mentor and original captain of the Enterprise, Winona Ryder and Ben Cross as Spock's parents, Sarek and Amanda, Clifton Collins Jr. as Aiel, Nero's second-in-command, and an unknown actor making his film debut as George Kirk, Captain Kirk's doomed father, Chris Hemsworth, who would go on to slip away into anonymity after this movie.
One face that drew an audible gasp from the audience when I saw the movie way back in 2009 was the face and voice of Admiral Richard Barnett, Tyler Perry. And this is usually a role that goes to a longtime Trek fan, maybe a celebrity fan that had grown up with the show, but Perry wasn't familiar in any way, shape, or form with Star Trek, had to look into who Abrams was, look into what the show was, and just decided, yeah, that'll be fun. This was the first appearance of Tyler Perry in any movie that he did not write or direct. One member that you could not find in an incredibly talented cast was perhaps the most famous face associated with Star Trek, William Shatner, the original Captain Kirk. And this wasn't a slight on the part of the writers, it's just that Captain Kirk was bound by the one thing that this movie was trying to escape from, canon. Leonard was always in the story, and we were trying desperately to figure out how to get William Shatner into the story as well. Unfortunately, in one of the films, Kirk dies. We, we struggled like hell to figure out what could have what could have done it, but it was the needs of canon versus the needs of the movie. In addition to recasting the original crew, Abrams also had to redesign one of the most famous ships and sets in the history of television and film, the USS Enterprise and its iconic bridge. Freed from continuity and having to incorporate the look of the TV show and the movies that followed, Abrams opted for a sleek design that still incorporated elements that fans of the franchise would recognize. What J.J. wanted and what Scott wanted were both the same thing, which was to remain true to the original feel of the Enterprise, um, but actually make it look cool, functional, but also futuristic. J.J. had said that he wanted to turn into a hot rod. And that's what I'm most proud about, actually, was that we did turn the Enterprise into kind of this hot rod thing. Another decision that Abrams made was to shoot on stage as little as possible, opting to scout real locations for the alien worlds and ship interiors featured in the movie. Even shots heavily incorporating visual effects such as the fight on the Romulan drilling platform were filmed outside in natural light. The motivation behind this decision was to take the movie as far out of the realm as fantasy as possible and drop it into reality. And the idea was instead of doing it all on stages, it was like, where can we shoot where things feel practical and real? The key to this movie for me from the very beginning was how do we make this real? Not how do we disregard it, how do we change it? But how do we make the spectacle feel real? There's just kind of a tangibleness that, that you need. Like if everything's all done on green screens, you, it kind of, it, it's not present. This tangible aesthetic also extended to the camera department. Star Trek 09, despite the revolution that was taking place at the time, was not shot digitally, it was shot on film. And the shaky cam effect of the movie was created in camera with Abrams often taking to shaking the camera himself by hand. And the use of anamorphic lenses provided an opportunity for Abrams to give the movie both its signature look and the thing it was probably most parodied for, the lens flare. Anamorphic lenses halate when light is shone at them directly and uh, we loved those flares. Nice flare. The lighting guys would be off on, on the edge of frame with you know flashlights pointing them back into the lens. Shooting began in November 2007, two days after the beginning of a protracted Writers Guild of America strike, which left J.J. Abrams in a very awkward position. Even though he could work as a director, he was technically on strike as a member of the Writers Guild, which meant while directing a scene, he could not modify any of the scenes in any major way. He could not suggest new lines of dialogue. He couldn't do anything that could be considered writing, lest he cross the picket line. It was a very difficult balance to keep in play while the strike was going on. As would be expected, the production was immediately under intense scrutiny from fans and paparazzi looking to leak photos of the new crew members and their unseen uniforms to any press outlet that would buy them. And after some early slip-ups, some extreme measures were taken to make sure that the set was kept under tight security. 
There was a floor-length vinyl fireman's jacket with a hood that I had to wear at all times. And then as soon as I stepped out of my trailer, I stepped into a golf cart that was completely enclosed with black tarp that then drove me the 15 to 25 yards from my trailer to the set. One barrier to stopping these leaks turned out to be Chris Pine's need to take a leak while filming in his cadet's uniform on location. I had to go to the bathroom so badly. So I bolted outside to relieve myself. Everything was dandy. Some shots of Chris rung up on the internet. These paparazzi shots of me outside taking a leak. Someone 200 yards away with a huge telephoto lens waiting for someone like myself to, to screw up. Leaks aside, let's dive right into the movie. And we start right away with the attack on the USS Kelvin by Nero's ship, the Narada. But this was not always the opening of the movie. The movie was intended to start with the birth of Spock. However, because Spock is significantly older than Captain Kirk, there needed to be events that linked all of these timelines, and ultimately it was deemed that it was too unwieldy to have so much at the beginning of the film that had to be explained. Uh, the movie didn't originally open with this. Nope. It opened with uh, the birth of uh, Spock. Well, we had the birth of Spock, then we had the uh, birth of Kirk, then we had young Spock, then young Kirk, then we had older Spock, then older Kirk, and it just was too much back and forth for too long. We were also really concerned about um, canon and continuity because Spock is older than Kirk, so right. you, couldn't, you right. couldn't do this scene first and then Spock's birth. The Trek timeline is skewed when Nero destroys the Kelvin, killing Kirk's father, while Kirk's mother is actually giving birth to the future captain. And I have to say, when I was watching this in the theater, I thought we were in real trouble as Trek fans because this was a very Losty vibe. Keep in mind, at the time, Lost was still on the air, and there were lots of different scenes of women giving birth in that show. It was actually a running trend that I didn't notice until I was re-watching it last year for Honest Trailers. The music also by Michael Giacchino was very similar to what you would hear on Lost. So as I was watching this, I thought, uh-oh, this isn't going to be Star Trek at all. This is just going to be Lost. I really, my mind started running away from me. Luckily, that was not the case with the movie. As a matter of fact, I was won over very shortly thereafter when the main new Star Trek theme kicked in. It's a, a track that's called on the original soundtrack, Enterprising Young Men, also composed, of course, by Michael Giacchino. And that visual of the huge star and the tiny ships escaping, all of the debris around Nero's ship, and then cutting to the new logo with the spinning and the, the great text, that old Star Trek text text but kind of newly rendered and that big rousing theme that really got me back on board it is one of my favorite modern movie scores But there was another modification to the plot that was supposed to come right after the attack, and that was the capture of Nero's crew by another familiar Star Trek foe. Where basically the Kelvin, you know, and, and sort of its kamikaze run, when George Kirk runs it into the Kelvin, it becomes... Knocks it into the neutral zone. Right, and then, the, and then they get picked up by some Klingons, and they get imprisoned by the Klingons for 25 years. And during that period of time... Basically, Nero is working on these calculations. This sequence is also available on the Blu-ray, and you can see Nero and his crew imprisoned on the Klingon penal colony of Rurapente, which is the same place where McCoy and Kirk are sent in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. These scenes also feature a cameo from another veteran Abrams player, Victor Garber, as a Klingon interrogator. I know where you're from. You're from the future, Nero. 
Much like Spock's birth, this is a very interesting sequence of events, but it's not ultimately useful to the movie, and so they cut it out. And that's one of the things that I actually admire most about Star Trek 09. When you look at it as a piece of blockbuster cinema, take the whole Star Trek thing away from it, it's actually a very economical film. It does a lot. It tells the origin stories of these characters. It gets them all together. You have crisis. You have action. You have so many different elements, and yet it still comes in at just over two hours. It's very economic in its storytelling, and I wish that there are some other summer blockbusters that would take the same lesson. This movie didn't need to be two and a half hours long, so it wasn't two and a half hours long, and it's something that I wish more movies would learn how to do. After the main titles, we do get into, admittedly, my least favorite part of the movie. First, we meet up with young Captain Kirk, who has stolen his stepfather's car, and there are a couple of things that apparently have survived centuries of war and technological advancement. One of them is Nokia. Uh, The other one is the Beastie Boys. And listen, I love the Beastie Boys, but I never would have pegged them as still being around in the 23rd century. In the film's commentary, J.J. Abrams offers a very temporally sound explanation of how this song made its way hundreds of years into the future. We have to talk about the song selection. J.J. Why Sabotage by the Beastie Boys. Uh... It's because it's a kick-ass song. That was my, that was, that's the true answer. This was originally part of a longer sequence where Kirk and his brother were arguing with their uncle who was looking after them, and it was their father's car, not their stepfather's. Mom has no idea what he's like when she's not around. Do you hear him talking like he's our dad? That's not even his car you're watching, that's dad's car. In the theatrical cut, the young kid that Kirk is driving by is actually his brother who's running away from home. And, you know, it's a high-energy way to start after the credits. You have him driving it into this big quarry. It's a big energy beat. I don't necessarily think it's that necessary to the film, but it bookends and allows us to see this other scene with a young Spock when he was a boy at school. And this is a scene that I actually like, particularly the way that young Vulcans approach bullying. This is your 35th attempt to elicit an emotional response me. You're neither human nor Vulcan and therefore have no place in this universe. Look, it's human eyes. It looks sad. This also leads to, without a doubt, my least favorite moment of the movie when a now grown Spock turns down an invitation to the Vulcan Science Academy amid insults to his human Vulcan heritage. And he does this using his signature phrase and a horrendously placed music cue. Thank you, ministers, for your consideration. Live long and prosper. Yeah, I gotta admit, I was fully back on the fence when that happened, but I was quickly won over again by the next scene, which finds a now fully crisp-pined Captain Kirk getting into a fight with some Starfleet cadets in a bar, which is broken up by Bruce Greenwood's Captain Pike. You all right, son? You can whistle really loud, you know that? Can we talk for a second about just how underrated Bruce Greenwood is? He really is one of the most consistent and best actors working today. And if you haven't seen his performance in the 2000 film 13 Days as John F. Kennedy, you should seek it out because you are really missing out. So we invade Cuba. And they fire their missiles. And we fire ours. Greenwood lends instant gravitas to the character of Pike, even to non-Trek fans who have no idea what his role in the canon is or what he went on to do in the TV series. And he wins Kirk over to enlist into Starfleet using what might be the best line in the movie. Your father was captain of a starship for 12 minutes. He saved 800 lives, including your mother's and yours. 
I dare you to do better. This scene leads to another moment of Star Wars inspiration as Captain Kirk looks at the Enterprise, which is under construction nearby on Earth. We did talk about a, a lot of uh, uh, fun poking has happened in terms of how we sort of echoed the, um, the storytelling in Star Wars, but that is sort of the great myth of, of our, our childhood and in the sort of Joseph Cram Campbell tradition. We always talked about rebooting Trek in, in terms of saying, where, where's our moment where Luke is looking at the twin sons? And This scene also proves why the alternate reality approach was the way to go, because it is a striking cinematic image. It's a great image. But I remember when the first real trailer for the movie hit, the Trek fans were already picking this apart because it was established canon that the Enterprise wasn't built on Earth, it was built in space, and it had been established in all of the manuals and the books that were written about the show. If the writers had tried to tell this story, while staying true to 40 plus years of established timeline, etc., then this movie would never have worked. Any change that they made, any tweak to the design of the Enterprise or the design of a uniform would have automatically been a continuity error. And any change in any event, which most fans at this point have down to the star date, would have been picked apart as a flaw in the timeline. It just couldn't have worked. You wouldn't have had enough room to operate as a storyteller. Here, the alternate timeline allows Abrams to stage this scene and many other Others like it and not have to explain why the changes were made. You can just chalk it up to an alternate reality. Why does the Enterprise look different? Well, maybe they learned something new from the technology that came through the time portal. Maybe they changed where they built starships due to security concerns because there is this huge attack in space. Any little change you can just say was a butterfly effect from the change in the timeline, and most Star Trek fans aren't going to mind that because they know how Star Trek deals with time travel. We've been dealing with alternate realities as Star Trek fans for decades now. Mirror Mirror is one of the best episodes of the original Star Trek TV series, and it is about jumping into an alternate dimension, an alternate timeline. So this was such an ingenious way to win over even the most hardcore Star Trek fans because you don't have to sell them on the idea idea of an alternate timeline, we already know they exist. We've known for years that they exist, and we just go, oh, okay, that's cool. An alternate reality. Precisely. Whatever our lives might have been if the time continuum was disrupted, our destinies have changed. I'll continue my journey through the stars and Star Trek 09 in just a moment, but first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Monk Pack, who makes snacks that taste like your favorite sugary treats, but with one gram of sugar or less. Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars contain one gram or less of sugar, two to three grams of net carbs, and are only 150 calories. They're great for people that are trying to eat better, cut back on those calories, or just have an overall healthier lifestyle without sacrificing taste. What's great is that I can keep these bars in the pantry right with everything else that tastes great. I can grab one. I love all of the flavors, and it is satisfying. It fills me up. It's a quick eat. It's healthier than most everything else that I would have grabbed for anyway, and it's something that can keep me going through the day. They also come in great flavors like sea salt dark chocolate, caramel sea salt, and peanut butter dark chocolate. That one is my favorite. The combination of those two flavors with the great texture is really what I go for, but you really can't go wrong no matter which flavor you choose. No matter what your situation is, it's a great snack on the go, and they are gluten-free, plant-based, and non-GMO with no soy, trans fat, sugar, alcohols, or artificial colors. And if you take a liking to one of the flavors like I have, you can also sign up to get subscribed to your favorite flavor so that you never run out. And if you do that, you get 10% off of every order that you subscribe to to keep you restocked with snacks that are healthy and make you feel good. 
Try it for yourself and you'll see. And I have a special deal for my listeners. Get 20% off your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting monkpack.com and entering our promo code MOVIES at checkout. And Monk Pack is so confident with their product, it's backed with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will exchange the product or refund your money, whichever you prefer. To get started, just go to monkpack.com. That's M-U-N-K-P-A-C-K.com and select any product. Then enter the code MOVIES at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. Monk Pack, delicious, nutritious food you can count on. And I'd like to thank them for sponsoring the show. Starfleet could use you. You can be an officer in four years. You can have your own ship in eight. Kirk decides to enlist in Starfleet, and on his way to the Academy, we meet my favorite reinvented character of the film, Carl Urban's Leonard Bones McCoy. He absolutely crushes this part. He captures the essence of everything DeForest Kelly gave the character of Bones, and yet does it without being just a cheap imitation. Wait till you're sitting pretty with a case of Andorian shingles. See if you're still so relaxed when your eyeballs are bleeding. Space is disease and danger wrapped in darkness and silence. The movie also provides an origin story for the doctor's nickname. He's got nowhere else to go. The ex-wife took the whole damn planet in the divorce. All that left is my bones. And according to the commentary, it's Urban, not the screenwriters, who should get credit for this character touch. And by the way, this line about uh, all I got left of my bones was Carl Urban's line, and that was something he came up with on, so, the, on the day. One thing that we as Trek fans got to see for the first time and an event that is similar in both timelines is Kirk cheating or creatively thinking of a way to beat the Kobayashi Maru test. And this is where Chris Pine sold me on this version of Captain Kirk because he nails that swagger, that bravado, this reckless confidence, and yet this competence at the same time that he's able to show. <laughs> All ships destroyed, Captain. Begin rescue of the stranded crew. The retcon of having Spock be the one to design the test is also a change to canon or an addition to canon that I'll allow because it allows Kirk and Spock to start off at odds and give their relationship somewhere to go. Your argument precludes the possibility of a no-win scenario. I don't believe in no-win scenarios. Then not only did you violate the rules, you also failed to understand the principal lesson. Kirk's disciplinary hearing with Admiral Tyler Perry is cut short when word comes in of a dire situation on Spock's home planet of Vulcan, and the sequence where Bones has to sneak Kirk onto the Enterprise by injecting him with a vaccine that allows him to say that he's under his medical care is another example of two great actors with comedic sensibilities that make a sequence work, because this in different hands could have been way too slapsticky, like in that kind of Transformers way where it's just try hard, you're not laughing, it's just people spinning their wheels. I actually laugh every time I watch the movie because Urban and Pine are so great at selling the comedy in this sequence. It was a clip on you. Was a ship? What? What's, what's happening in my mouth? You got numb tongue? Numb tongue? I can fix that. This is also where we get our first real look at the new USS Enterprise, and I think it is the perfect blend of the original series, the original movies, and a fresh eye when looking at the design. It's a really sleek hybrid of all of them. It is unquestionably the Enterprise, but it doesn't look overly homage. It doesn't look dated. I think it's a great combination of all of these different looks. And another thing that the movie was able to use, and this is for the first time, is the original series uniforms. Those great clothes from the 
original series, those those different colored shirts had never been used in the in the ten films. This sequence also gives us a great look at how Abrams was able to blend practical filmmaking with digital technology. There's one shot where we see Spock enter the turbo lift from engineering. The camera doesn't cut; it's it pans away and then it pans back over, and he walks out onto the bridge. This wasn't really a complicated thing. Abrams had Zachary Quinto walk onto the turbo lift from the bridge set with somebody holding up literally a piece of green screen behind him. He panned away. Off screen, the crew member just stepped out of the doorway and Quinto walked back out onto the bridge set. It's a very simple trick and yet even subconsciously, it sells the fact that you're on this big ship and that you're not looking at a visual effect. Abrams is a very creative filmmaker, especially in his first few films of figuring out the best merits between digital effects and practical effects. The interior of the Enterprise was also infused with a dose of reality. The bridge set was mostly practical displays, etc., stuff that didn't have to be green screened in later. And the bowels of the ship, particularly main engineering, were shot in a real Budweiser factory in the San Fernando Valley. The massive vats and beams had just the look that Abrams was looking for for the heart of the Enterprise. He wanted to give the Enterprise a sense of of reality, a sense of actual space, something that couldn't be provided by computer graphics or plates or effects. This sequence is the Enterprise's launching where we also meet Sulu for the first time. Also has a great comedic beat with Anton Yelchin's Chekhov, who at first was very reticent to do the same accent that Walter Koenig had done on the original Star Trek series. He said it wasn't accurate to how people actually talked in Russia, and given that his family was actually from Russia, he would probably know. However, ultimately, accuracy lost out to being consistent with the way that Chekhov spoke in the original series and movies. Encenotrization code 95, Victor Victor. Authorization not recognized. 9-5. Victor, Victor 2. Access granted. At this point in Trek canon, Vulcan had only been seen a few times. A very lo-fi version on the TV series. We'd also seen it in Star Trek 3 and Star Trek 4. But there was no overriding design for how the planet should look. But in giving this alien landscape a fresh new look, Abrams also decided to return to a location that was very familiar to Trek fans. Vasquez Rocks was used as a filming location since the early 1900s, and it was used, of course, in the original Star Trek series where Kirk fought the Gorn. Watching this movie for the first time, I was pretty sure I knew where we were going. It seemed like a standard setup. The heroes face off with the villain for the first time. They narrowly defeat his plan, although at great cost. I assumed it would be the life of Captain Pike because, you know, Kirk's got to eventually sit in that captain's chair. That would set up an even bigger showdown in Act 3 where the heroes would win their decisive victory against the bad guy. And we do get a great interaction between Captain Pike and Nero, which just underscores the fact that Eric Bana was having a really good time playing this character. Hello. I'm Captain Christopher Pike. To whom am I speaking? Hi, Christopher. I'm Nero. The drill platform sequence is a really solid action sequence. And then Spock gets to play action hero, running into the heart of Vulcan to save his parents. And then a couple of unthinkable things happen. First of all, Spock's mom dies, which as a Star Trek fan was about as far from canon as I thought that this was going to go. She was such a consequential figure in his life. And the fact that you cast Winona Ryder in this role, just as a movie fan, you kind of subconsciously think, well, she's going to be around for a few movies. And then they actually destroy Vulcan. And... I'm pretty sure watching this in a theater, my jaw actually dropped. Seeing this planet, which is really along with Earth, the heart of the Federation, completely implode and get destroyed on screen, just to nothingness. There's nothing left of it, and it happens in seconds. 
For Trek fans, this is a seismic event. This is the equivalent, if you're a Star Wars fan, of if J.J. Abrams had rebooted the Star Wars timeline and in the first movie, Tatooine had just been obliterated like Alderaan in the original Star Wars and just been gone. This is a very crucial location for Star Trek fans and proof that these writers and Abrams had intentions of really actually taking this franchise where it hadn't gone before. Again, I think in one of those very first story meetings that we all had, we basically said, if we're gonna if we're gonna change things, let's do it. We've gotta change it in a big way. On the heels of this reveal comes another one that I've never really been in favor of. The idea that Spock and Uhura are a couple. I'm not in favor of this for a couple of reasons. Number one, just as a Star Trek fan, I don't think that this version of Spock in any timeline would have indulged in something as frivolous as a human relationship. Yes, I know that his father married a human, but his father was an ambassador. Spock is a Starfleet officer. Maybe an older version of Spock, but this young version of Spock, there's just nothing I've ever seen that would say that he would actually get into a relationship with Uhura. But plenty of people have said, well, you can see the sparks in the original series. I'm an illogical woman who's been beginning to feel too much a part of that communications council. Why don't you tell me I'm an attractive young lady? The other thing that I don't like is that Zoe Saldana, who is a great actor, I think most of her quote-unquote arc, largely in this movie and the second one, was tied up in this relationship. And when you're trying to grow all of these characters, and I think that all of them across the different series got more to do in one way or another than they did in the TV show, I feel like Uhura was held back by this because this was their version of her getting a story, but it was really just her being angry at Spock because he was being a bad boyfriend, or did they break up, did they not break up? I think there's so many more interesting things you could do with Uhura, and I feel like Zoe Saldana got saddled with a lot of this thing that I would chalk it up to the most traditional intrusion of of classic quote-unquote Hollywood filmmaking into this franchise. It just doesn't quite fit into the rest of the film. So even though there's plenty of people that may like it and justify it, and probably people that don't know Star Trek very well are fine with Uhura and Spock together, I've never really liked it, and it just kind of drags this part of the movie down for me, especially in the wake of the destruction of Vulcan, which I think was a very bold move. Blowing up Vulcan was nothing compared to saying Spock and Uhura are are in (laughs) love with each other and are having this incredibly intimate relationship. After a classic Star Trek bridge debate... Such technology could theoretically be manipulated to create a tunnel through space-time. Damn it, man, I'm a doctor, not a physicist. Kirk is jettisoned onto a nearby planet called Delta Vega, which is where he meets the older version of the officer who just jettisoned him off the Enterprise, Leonard Nimoy's Spock, now named Spock Prime. I, I don't know you. I am Spock. Bullshit. Here's another place where this movie could have gone really wrong if Spock felt unnecessary or not needed in the film. But by raising the stakes with the destruction of Vulcan, you now give the classic version of Spock some character growth and something to actually go through. We have an aging Vulcan who now finds himself in a completely different timeline, in a past that's not even really his past, who's saddled with the guilt of not being able to save Romulus, along with the grief of witnessing the destruction of his home planet, along with the Vulcan sensibility of not not being able to show these emotions. And Nimoy really nails this performance. So you're, you're saying that I have to emotionally compromise you guys. Jim, I just lost my planet. I can tell you, I am emotionally compromised. 
On a nearby outpost, Kirk meets up with Simon Pegg Scotty, the future ship's engineer, and Spock Prime, using knowledge of Scotty's future work, is able to beam them back onto the Enterprise while it's traveling at warp. And all of these scenarios, Kirk meeting up with Spock Prime, the two of them meeting up with Scotty, them getting back onto the Enterprise, over the years I've seen the criticisms that these are too adherent to coincidence, that the movie is lazy because it just throws these people together. What are the odds that Kirk's going to run into Spock Prime? etc. In the movie's commentary, the writers of the film acknowledge these criticisms and say that they regret cutting lines that would have established that this is not coincidence, this is the combination of physics and fate. Kirk sort of asked the question, I don't understand, you're, you're saying that our lives were diverged from, from the original timeline, but all, there's all these coincidences and how's that possible? And Nimoy says, you know, there's no real way to answer it, but perhaps it's the time stream's way of mending itself. I remember when it was first pitched, like, how are you guys ever going to make running into Spock in the cave work? Right, you were really stuck on that. You, I was, you, you but, just but, but, yeah. but what you guys did so brilliantly is, like, by saying it's fate, that it's, it's, requir- it's destiny, these characters must be together. That, to me, I was like, oh, my God, it literally <laughs> just for some reason just made... Because you know what the answer is? Because you want it. That's right. a lost you trick, know? which is... It is expl- such a lost trick. Do not mistake coincidence <laughs> for fate. That's exactly right. This was not the last time that Leonard Nimoy would play Spock. Regrettably, in my opinion, he was brought back again for a brief role in 2013's Star Trek Into Darkness. But for my money, this is his last real performance as Spock. And this was also something that was obviously very meaningful for the actor himself, as you can see on this footage when he wrapped filming on the movie. I'm not emotional. (laughs) I've had a great time. And... uh, I have not been looking forward to this day. It's 18 years since the last time I I played Spock. 18 years, hard hard to believe. And it's 42 years since I first started. So it means a lot to me to be here with all of you people tonight. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Back on the Enterprise, Kirk goads the younger Spock into an emotional confrontation, meaning that he has to step down from command due to being emotionally compromised. And by virtue of Kirk being made first officer by Captain Pike earlier, we now have everyone in their positions. Captain Kirk is now in charge of the Enterprise. I would cite regulation, but I know you will simply ignore it. See? We are getting to know each other. From here, we get the slam-bang finale that you would expect from a summer movie, although I have to say that I do think that this film is able to merge blockbuster summer filmmaking and the Star Trek mentality about as well as any other Star Trek movie really has. Nero attacks Earth, he's defeated by Spock and Kirk, and then the red matter is detonated near Nero's ship, the Narada, creating a new black hole that sucks Nero into it. And I have to admit, as this was happening, as this new black hole was formed and the Enterprise was being sucked into it, I was worried that they were going to basically pull a mulligan, that they were going to undo all of the bold changes that they'd done in this movie, that Vulcan was going to be undestroyed, that they were essentially going to throw the Enterprise back in time to before any of this had happened, and then reset them into the established canon. Luckily, that didn't happen. The Enterprise just ejects the warp core and blows it up, as you do in just about any Star Trek TV show or movie when something is wrong. Always try blowing up the warp core. The Enterprise escapes, and all of the changes to the timeline that we've seen stay intact. After a great scene between Spock and Spock Prime, Since my customary farewell would appear oddly self-serving, I shall simply say, good luck. The crew of the Enterprise takes to the bridge, essentially in their starting positions for further adventures. Boats, buckle up. 
sadly, this is also the peak of the new Star Trek films for me. It never really seemed like anybody knew what to do with this crew once they got them together. And the other films are basically about either ripping them apart or remaking movies that had already worked before. And in listening to the commentary for this film, I was surprised that they cut a reference to Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, not wanting to get locked into making the remake of Wrath of Khan that they would eventually make anyway. We had actually talked at yeah. one point about doing something at the end of the credits. Uh, the sequel. You know, involving the, uh, the, botany, the Botany Bay, but uh, I'm glad we didn't yeah. because that would have uh, tied our hands for the sequel. It would have. Star Trek wrapped filming in March of 2008, originally planned for a release in December of 2008. However, after further consideration and seeing that they might have a big crowd-pleasing film on their hands, Paramount decided to push the release date to summer 2009, which left plenty of time for music, special effects, all of the finishing touches that needed to be done on the film. As mentioned before, the music came courtesy of Michael Giacchino, who would win an Academy Award for a film score that he wrote for a 2009 film, just not Star Trek. He actually wrote three scores for 2009 releases and one for his work on Pixar's Up. For the sound design of the film, J.J. Abrams turned to another mind behind the Star Wars franchise, legendary sound designer Ben Burtt, who reimagined some of the series' most famous sound effects. So when I was asked to work on the very first Star Wars movie, I took a lot of my inspiration from the sounds that I loved in Star Trek. So naturally, when I had an opportunity to think and uh, uh, conceptualize about sound effects in the new Star Trek, I was very excited because I always want to be part of that, that whole universe. The long lead time also allowed for something that I think is becoming more and more of a rarity and that I really love, a custom teaser trailer that was attached to 2008's Cloverfield, a project that was produced by J.J. Abrams, showing the Enterprise under construction. Space. The final frontier. Star Trek was released in the U.S. and Canada on May 8, 2009, and it immediately set some high-water marks for the franchise. First and foremost, it was the best-reviewed film of the entire era when you look at percentage of positive reviews to negative reviews the way that it's viewed on Rotten Tomatoes. It also had the highest opening weekend for any Star Trek film before or since domestically, taking in more than $75 million. The new Star Trek film is already at the top of the weekend box office. J.J. Abrams' reboot of the sci-fi franchise debuts with an estimated $76.5 million. Star Trek went on to become the highest domestic-grossing Trek film to date and is the second-highest-grossing Trek film worldwide behind only 2013's Star Trek Into Darkness. It also reinvigorated the franchise, introducing it to non-fans and largely pleasing the notoriously difficult-to-please Star Trek fanbase. Guilty as charged. Looking back in social media, I remembered seeing Star Trek on opening day, May 8, 2009, but I didn't remember that I went back to see it three days later on May 11th with some friends. I also wrote a little mini review on Facebook, and these were some of my thoughts literally hours after I saw the movie for the first time. Was this a perfect movie? No, but the one thing that most Trek fans have been looking for since the end of the original show is a return to the swashbuckling fun of the original crew of the Enterprise. And you know what? This is as close to the original as we're going to get. J.J. Abrams blew the first Star Trek movie, 1979 Star Trek Conversations in Space, out of the water. Let's see what he has up his sleeve for the next one, because trying to top Star Trek 2, that would really be boldly going.
I was right about several things there. Admittedly, I've warmed up to the film a little bit since I wrote that. I think it is easily one of the top five Star Trek films of all time, right up there with Star Trek II, Star Trek IV, Star Trek VI, a personal favorite of mine, and Star Trek First Contact. That's the upper tier, and for me, there's a pretty wide gulf between it and the next level. I also think it shows how you can take a franchise, reinvent it with love and respect for the original, but also with a lot of ingenuity, and produce a product that can more or less please just about everyone, or as close as you can get to that. If anything, Star Trek 09 set a high bar that neither of the films that followed were able to emulate. 2013 Star Trek Into Darkness made a little more money worldwide and a little less money domestically, but it certainly was not able to please the hardcore Trek fans in the same way that 2009 Star Trek did. I was particularly displeased with that film, as were the majority of the hardcore Trek fans. And 2016's Star Trek Beyond had such a low box office take that a fourth film was scrubbed from the production calendar and the future of the Star Trek film franchise has been in limbo ever since. There have been rumors, there have been talks that Quentin Tarantino is going to do a Star Trek film, but nothing concrete has actually occurred. And the Star Trek franchise itself is now focused on pumping out TV shows in the new streaming era. But that doesn't lessen the accomplishments of the 2009 film. In addition to the great box office and critical acclaim, it also set a high watermark for awards in the Trek franchise. Star Trek 09 received a Screen Actors Guild Award for its stunt ensemble. It was nominated along with the Best Pictures of the Year for the Producers Guild Award. It was also nominated for a Writers Guild Award for Best Adapted Screenplay and was nominated for four Academy Awards, becoming the first Trek film to win an Oscar in the category of Best Makeup. We thank J.J. Abrams. Uh, your, your vision inspired us. Your energy kept us going. And your insistence on perfection brought us here. By the time 2013 rolled around, I was already a writer and editor on Honest Trailers at Screen Junkies, and we tackled the 2009 film as the sequel was about to launch. And I have to admit, we didn't really thrash it too hard. We poked some fun at the lens flares and stuff, but I think the harshest criticism we had for it was that it was basically J.J. Abrams' Star Wars demo reel, which isn't too far off the mark. Come aboard as Kirk commands the USS Enterprise, the Federation's heavily armed Apple store. In many ways... Star Trek 09 was the biggest success in the history of the Star Trek franchise, but it would have been an empty victory if it hadn't respected the legacy that came before it. Too many times producers and writers have come into an established franchise and gutted everything about it in order to make a quick buck. That was certainly my worst fear ever since the dreaded reboot word was attached to the franchise, but instead... I think that we got the equivalent of a welcome party. It certainly brought back in so many people that love Star Trek. It was true to the characters. It was true to the spirit and the vision that Gene Roddenberry had started all those decades ago. But it also brought in so many new people, people that had never heard of Star Trek or maybe had never liked Star Trek. And it was accessible to them in a way that no other Star Trek film had been before. Yes, it was Star Trek at its most accessible, but I think it was also Trek at its boldest. And that is a balance that they have not been able to replicate since. When I'm asked why I love Star Trek, I always say it's because it's not just genre filmmaking or genre TV. It's because it actually has something to say. There's a message behind everything you're seeing, even if it's silly aliens fighting each other. It says that even though tough times might lie ahead, there's a brighter future out there waiting to be discovered, that all the differences we face today will be conquered and learned from, that humanity will be able to peacefully unite with each other and species from other planets, and that together we will reach for the stars in a spirit of discovery 
not war. It's a message that was resonant in the 1960s, and it's one that remains resonant today. And it's a message that I hope that well-intentioned producers will keep trying to make no matter how many failed shows, reimaginings, reboots, sequels, and prequels it takes. I am a Star Trek fan now and forever, and I will be right there in the front row whenever somebody decides to take another crack at getting this message out to a new generation. As always, I like to look at the special features of the discs that I have in my collection. And this is a great example of the promise of the Blu-ray format early because this is the original Blu-ray disc that was put out for this movie, but it has more special features and documentaries than most special edition discs that are put out on physical media today. Disc one has the film and a feature commentary from director J.J. Abrams, producer Damon Lindelof, executive producer Brian Burke, and writers Roberto Orsi and Alex Kurtzman. The second disc is packed with documentary and features that cover every aspect of the movie from beginning to end. One documentary is called To Boldly Go, which covers the pre-production of the film. When I was first asked to be involved in Star Trek, I, I, I said yes very quickly. I just, I just felt that it was um, something that, that it just felt like the right thing. There's one called Casting that takes on the search for a new Enterprise crew and their stories of making the film, including Carl Urban's take on seeing Leonard Nimoy perform the character of Spock in person. I remember watching him do his first scene as Spock for the first time in 15 years or something, and all of us were just like huddled around, you know, the monitor and, and watching him and just hearing him deliver those Spock lines and that Spock cadence as quite an extraordinary moment. A new vision tackles Abrams' production methods, including one really ingenious way to shoot the inverted dive scene. Abrams had the actors stand on mirrors that reflected the sky that were able to give them a backdrop that could save them thousands of dollars in visual effects. This also includes Leonard Nimoy's take on Abrams as a filmmaker. There are directors who have the, the, uh, the talent for great big action and production values and so forth. And there are directors who have a talent for very intimate moments between human beings. And a lot of directors don't have both. They can do one or the other very, very well. And J.J. can do both, and, and that's what makes him special. Starships takes on the construction and design of the ships used in the movie, including the Bridge of the Enterprise. There's also a documentary devoted especially to the aliens in the film, and one about how the different planets featured in the film were put together, both through visual effects and through practical shooting methods. But what was really difficult about this, it was about a, uh, two or three weeks of me just running away from invisible monsters so it would be trip you fall you're watching the monster the monster's chasing you look scared look scared run there are also features devoted solely to props and costumes sound designer ben burt if you tap this at the very base you begin to get the photon torpedo and a look at the process behind Michael Giacchino's reinvention of the Star Trek score. We always talked about that the music should have an energy to it that is just relentless and not be so much about the grandeur of what they're doing, but be about how difficult it is what they're about to do. You also get a retrospective about Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry's vision of the franchise when he first came up with it in the 1960s. The reason that we're sitting here today talking about Star Trek is because it resonates. And the only reason it resonates is because it was about something real. It wasn't just a fantasy. Several deleted scenes, many of which I profiled here, including the Romulan escape from the Klingon prison. I am. The wait is over. There's a pretty entertaining gag reel. You will die. Your people will die. J.J. Abrams will die. Picked up a signal from a Klingon person planet. It's very interesting. Oh, my 
and a lot of the marketing and publicity materials for the movie, including the custom teaser and a couple of theatrical trailers. You will always be a child of two worlds and fully capable of deciding your own destiny. The question you face is, which path will you choose? And that wraps up our look at Star Trek 09. I know it has been an extensive look, but that's what happens when I talk about movies that I love. I mean, I love talking about movies every week on this show, but there's some like this one that I just want to share every little piece and tidbit that I learned about the movie. So thank you in advance for indulging me as I look at one of my favorite movies and one of my favorite film franchises of all time. And as I said, that is going to be the theme for this month, movies that I love for one reason or another. And there's a reason why I picked that theme, and that's because I really want to make this month special because this is going to be the last of what I call phase one of all my movies. As I've mentioned several times on the show, I started the show as a partnership with myself, the Schmodown Entertainment Network, and Skybound. And they have been fantastic partners uh, throughout the past year as we've produced the show together. They helped me launch it, and they've advised me as we look at the show and how it's going to grow. But this has also been a very challenging year for me personally because I didn't quite know what I wanted this show to be until I started doing it. At first, I thought maybe it was going to be a guest-driven show and it would be a little inside information for me and a lot of input from guests, etc. But as I started making the show more and more, I found that what I love to do is to go on these deep dives, to watch the movie, watch the Blu-ray, watch every special feature, watch every commentary, go online, find as much trivia as I can, find interviews and news clips and vintage stuff. I love finding those things and I love putting them together, but it is a very time-consuming process. My hope in this last year was that the show would grow and expand to the point where I could devote as much time as I wanted to it each and every week. At the same time, I want to create a consistent product, and so what I found myself doing over the last year is taking every spare minute that I have and putting it into this show while keeping everything else afloat. And I'm very proud of everything that I produce, but at the same time, I've been keeping up a schedule for myself that is untenable. So after some discussion with Sky bound in SEN as the first year of our contract comes to a close. We have decided to end our partnership in making this show. I own the show, so I'm going to continue producing all my movies in some form, and I don't quite know what that form's going to be yet. It may very well be in the hybrid video-audio form that we see now. It may be an audio-only podcast. I'm not really sure how I'm going to do it, but I want to make sure that I'm able to put as much time into the show to research even more, to deep dive even more, to really unlock the potential of the show when I'm not quite locked into that weekly schedule where every single week there's a new episode that's just as in depth as the one before it. I want to deliver the best show possible for you. And to be quite honest, I want to make the best show possible for me because I'm very proud of the show and I want to continue to be proud of the show. So throughout the month of July, things are going to continue as they always have been. You will be able to find this show on YouTube. You will also be able to find the show on the same audio feed where it currently lives. After July, there'll probably be a little bit of a break as I retool and reinvent the show. There's also just some practicalities. I'm going to have to start up a new podcast feed because I, I don't own the feed that it's on right now. I'm also just going to have to figure out what's the process of making this show. What do I want to do? But All My Movies is going to be back, and I'm really hoping to come back and retool it and do as much with it as I know the show is possible of doing. So thank you again for watching this show, and please do stick around for the rest of the month because we're going to have a lot of fun. If you're watching on YouTube and you want to get the audio subscription, you can find it down in the description below. If you're listening to us and you want to check us out on YouTube, I'm at youtube.com slash movies. We're going to have another really fun movie next week, but until then, it's time to go back on the show. I'll see you next time.